Welcome to Class 18, as I wind up my last thoughts on the Silmarillion and move into The Hobbit. I want to say two more things about, uh, from the Silmarillion, about, from the end of, uh, of The Rings of Power in the Third Age, before we move on. Uh, and uh, fortunately, these, these two, this is not just, um, not just going backwards, but these are both sort of transitional points. They're both things that I want you to be keeping in mind as we move from the Silmarillion to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the first one. Notice the emphasis on page 302. If you still have your book, you can look it up. If not, I'll read it. Um, The discussion of the finding of the ring. (laughs) As we read The Hobbit, of course, going back and looking at the description of the, like, uh, one-paragraph summary of the plot of of The Hobbit is, uh, is kind of interesting. Orcs were mustering, and far to the east and the south the wild peoples were arming. Then in the midst of gathering fear and the rumors of war, the foreboding of Elrond was proved true, and the One Ring was indeed found again, by a chance more strange than even Mithrandir had foreseen. And it was hidden from Kurinir and from Sauron. The finding of the ring is a surprise. A surprise to absolutely everyone involved. Elrond has this foresight that the ring will be found. He has this foreboding. He knows, okay, you know, Saruman is saying, oh, no, don't worry about the ring. It's such a non-issue. And Elrond is like, "Mm, something tells me it's going to be an issue. Um, Mithrandir is, you know, Gandalf is worried about it and is talking about it. But nobody expects what happens. What happens takes everybody by surprise. Um, Gandalf will emphasize this when in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, he's talking to Frodo and thinking back about this, and he's doing his own kind of narration and summary. Uh, he will just say, you know, at this moment, the ring was found by the most unlikely person imaginable, Bilbo from the Shire. And this is, I just, this is something that I want to draw attention to because it's something which is clearly an important factor in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings, but it's going to be emphasized there less than we might perhaps see it emphasized here. Remember, one of the big changes from The Silmarillion to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. The Silmarillion, as I've been emphasizing, is an elven document. This is, these are stories told from the elvish point of view. The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are both of them stories told from the Hobbit perspective and the Hobbit point of view. The Hobbit is within the fictional frame of the text, Bilbo's diary, Bilbo's story from his perspective, from within his range of knowledge, and, and you know, uh, sort of supplemented by what he learned afterwards, but still told from the Hobbit perspective, and so is the Lord of the Rings. Both of these are fundamentally Hobbit documents in the way that the Silmarillion is fundamentally an Elvish document. Therefore, things are going to be talked about differently. We will see different emphases. One thing which will disappear almost entirely is... Iluvatar and the Valar. There will be stray references to them. Things which you will get now that you've read the Silmarillion will stick out to you in ways that they don't usually stick out to people who read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, You'll still see them, but the stories aren't going to emphasize them and aren't going to talk about them because that's not where hobbits live. That's not part of the central worldview, uh, explicit worldview of hobbits. Um, But note here, again, this emphasis... The finding of the ring is a surprising thing. Nobody anticipates it. There are some things that happen outside of the predicted plan. Even the Valar don't foresee them. When this happens, when this happens in the Silmarillion, 
And therefore, by extension, when this happens in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, what we are seeing, what is happening, is what? If it's something, if it's an unforeseen event, what do we know about it? What can we deduce about it? It's Iluvatar's doing? Yeah. There are times when Iluvatar intercedes, intervenes uh, in events. And this is what... I mean, again, when you're just reading The Lord of the Rings, um, most people don't know what to make of this line. But after Gandalf delivers that line about the ring being found by the most unlikely person imaginable, Gandalf will say, there was more than one power at work. And that's all he'll say <laughs> about it. And people are like, uh, okay. Um, several powers at work, I guess. Thanks for the information. But... But we can see what he means. Again, especially coming from the framework of the Silmarillion, we can see what he means. Um, He is pointing fairly directly to moments like this which have always happened. Times which, things which are not foreseen by the Valar, which are not foretold by the music. Um, Parts that Iluvatar himself puts in. Um, Many people will read The Lord of the Rings knowing that Tolkien was... A devout Catholic was, 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 was a very serious and dedicated Christian. They'll read C.S. Lewis and be like, ah, Christian, Christian, Christian. I know where I am. They'll read The Lord of the Rings and say, well, wait a second. Why is, why is this not more Christian than it appears to be? Where's God here? I thought this was supposed to be Christian. And then, so then there'll be some people who be like, well, see, be, all of this stuff about Tolkien's Christianity is really, really overemphasized. It's not really there in the text. It is, actually. Um, But one thing that Tolkien is very careful about is to maintain the consistency of the framework. The Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit are told from the Hobbit's perspective. And therefore, within the theological understanding and vocabulary of Hobbits. Uh, So they're not going to speculate about this a lot. They're not going to talk about this a lot. But this is one example. Uh, this, This moment in this little synopsis points to uh, and helps us to see these moments where this stuff is actually still operative. Uh, another instance, the almost as brief synopsis of the whole Lord of the Rings that we get uh, a page or two later, um, this often drives people crazy. Here it is, the Lord of the Rings. Spoiler alert. For Frodo the halfling, it is said, at the bidding of Mithrandir, took on himself the burden, and alone with his servant, he passed through peril and darkness and came at last in Sauron's despite even to Mount Doom. The end. Now, this especially offends Sam fans. (laughs) Alone with his servant? Come on now! Let's give Sam some props here. Alone with his servant. Uh, uh, I, the one thing that I would say, and, and first of all, I mean, I will confess, there is no bigger fan of Sam Gamgee than I am. He's my absolute favorite character, and not just my favorite character, but the character who is plainly the central hero of that entire work, and the, 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 uh, it's, that's like open and shut. Uh, but anyhow, recognizing that, this is not an insult to Sam. It might sound like one at first. Like, oh, look, how it's minimizing, how it's marginalizing. It's not even naming him for crying out loud. He's just his servant, right? This, within the economy of the Lord of the Rings and the emphasis of this passage, is a compliment. Remember what this is supposed to be illustrating. Yet in that hour was put to the proof that which Mithrandir had spoken, and help came from the hands of the weak when the wise faltered. 
For as many songs have since sung, it was the Perianath, the little people, dwellers in hillsides and meadows that brought them deliverance. The emphasis of this section, of this passage, is the weak shall accomplish that which the strong fail to accomplish. And that in the end, the greatest of deeds is accomplished by the least of people. Therefore, for Sam to be merely the servant of the least of people who accomplishes it is a compliment, you see. Um, what we see here in the very closing pages of the Silmarillion is the other side, which has not been emphasized very much. The other side of the coin of what we have been seeing a lot of through the Silmarillion. We have noticed on many occasions that the great fall, that greatness itself is a temptation. Melkor falls. Feanor falls. Gondolin falls. Numenor falls. But the weak rise. And so the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Right? Keep this trend in mind as we go through the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Rarely is it going to be delivered to us like this, like the elves are doing from their perspective here, looking back over the events of the Third Age, which is what we get in this, in this passage. When we are getting this, uh, when we're getting this story told from closer to the ground level several feet closer to the ground level in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, we will get, we'll get it differently. And we won't see it from this perspective. Often this, we'll, we'll be able to see this happening, but it's not going to be emphasized in these details. So that's why I wanted to kind of bring out those last two things in setting up our further discussions. And now let us enter into further discussions. The Hobbit uh, is... Quite different, as you will have noticed from the Silmarillion. There, is very, there are very few more jarring uh, transitions available to you in the body of Tolkien's fiction than uh, moving from a multi-week read through the Silmarillion to The Hobbit. Um, the tone could hardly be more different between the two, as well as the register and the vocabulary. Notice what he does with names. We, you know, we've been talking about names, and of course many of you have been very understandably laboring uh, with the number and complexity of the names in the Silmarillion. It's one of the things which makes that text so challenging. How do the names work in The Hobbit? Yeah, Jordan? There's the hill and the water. And despite the fact that The Hobbits, if you, if you look at the magical movements between the two bodies of water, they don't kill them at once. Or <laughs> yeah. Other than the personal names of the major characters, almost every name in The Hobbit is a simple description of the thing. The hill, the water. What's the town called? Bywater, because it's by the water, right? Uh, uh, you know, Hobbiton, the town of the hobbits, right? Eventually, they're going to go to the Lonely Mountain, which is by the Long Lake, which are connected by the river running, because it, it runs down from the mountain to the lake, Right? <laughs> On Lake, you'll be able to find a city called Lake Town. No, Dale is the one, is the city that's under the mountain because it's in the, the little valley, the Dale, that's in front of the Lonely Mountain, right? And, and this is what we'll see continually all the way through. Even Bjorn has a name like this because Bjorn means bear in Anglo-Saxon. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, who's the king of the goblins? The Great Goblin, of course, right? I mean, it's just, that's, it's, in this way, it couldn't be more different uh, from the Silmarillion. Although, in some ways, there are still 
similarities. He is still being very careful with names. One of the primary differences is that these names are English names <laughs> instead of Elvish names. In fact, he still sometimes gives us the Elvish names, right? Lake Town, we were, we're told, is also was used to be called Esgaroth, too. But he doesn't lean on that. Um, part of this, of course, is the result of accommodating his narrative for children. I'm not going to set you a lot of Elvish names to memorize. Um, these are easier to keep in mind, but also... The connection between name and thing is something really insisted upon. And that's always something important in Tolkien. That was just as important in the Silmarillion. The names were different. But the connection between the names and things was still a very important thing. Um, Remember passages like Fingolfin talking to Finway and and complaining about Feanor, who is called all too truly the spirit of fire, right? Fingolfin is drawing attention to to the connection between Feanor's name and himself. Uh, His name, Feanor, Spirit of Fire, a little too uncomfortably accurate. This is what I complain of. He is Feanor, right? Um, So uh, it's it's, it's actually not completely different from uh, the way it was before, but it still, um, it certainly sounds different, and it creates a very different kind of reading experience. Um, I've mentioned before, The Hobbit was the first of his books of fiction that were were published um, as books. It was published in 1937, um, he wrote it with children in mind and uh, at a time, uncoincidentally, when his own children were young uh, and he would read the story to his own children. It's one of the factors that he points to as to why the tone of The Lord of the Rings is so different because by that time his children were much older and he was writing to them as they were, uh, as they were in their teens and 20s and, and therefore the story worked a little differently than it did when they were very young. Um, One of the effects of this, one of the practical effects of this, is that this is a story written written for real children, not theoretically written for children. Um, You'll remember Tolkien's own discussion in On Fairy Stories of works which have been sort of laboriously bowdlerized so that they would be, in the opinion of some adults, appropriate for children, and Tolkien's own resistance to that idea. Um, And so when he writes his own book for children, um, he's not approaching it that way. This is not, let me tell a story which might be interesting, but let me, like, you know, dumb it down such that even kids can understand it. That is very much not his approach. And one of the things that I find very impressive about The Hobbit is how organically it works. That is how how carefully and thoughtfully it's adapted uh, to the experience of children, but yet how he is using that as a medium to actually still tell a very interesting story. And one, in fact, which really articulates and works out a lot of his uh, his theories in on fairy stories, which you'll remember is you know was was a, 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 an address that he delivered within a couple years of writing the Hobbit. These were things that were on his mind and had been on his mind, and we can see many of those things reflected in the Hobbit. Um, but of course, arguably, the tone, uh, the tone and the rhetoric of the Hobbit and on fairy stories is even more different from the tone of of, of the Hobbit and the Silmarillion. There's a lot that I could say about. His, the adaptation of his tone to children. Um, and I'm not going to say them all. Actually, one thing I will mention on the subject of me not saying everything, um, one of the things that's, that's uh, awkward, challenging, kind of fun, um, about working through The Hobbit in the way that we're working through it, i.e. very fast, uh, in four sessions, 
Um, on my website and podcast, I've been doing a, a long lecture series on The Hobbit um, in which I take probably, I don't know, three or four times as much time uh, to talk about it. So I've been working through it really carefully and spending a lot of time on details and everything. And so trying to kind of going from that to thinking through it uh, in the rapid way that we have to do in this class has been kind of, uh, kind of jarring, fun, but, but, but hard. So I just want to mention that if uh, there will doubtless be lots and lots of times when there are just a lot more that I would want to say or a lot more that I have said in my lectures that I'd like to talk about, we're just not going to have time to do in class. One of the m biggest things, for instance, um, I, love, I love the poems in this book. The poems in this book, don't skip them. Read them really carefully. Uh, they are remarkable. Not remarkable in the sense of like, you know, you're going to read like the goblins chant and be like, this poem is so moving. It's now like my favorite poem and I'm going to like put it on my Facebook account. But rather, it's, <laughs> the poetry is immensely uh, thoughtful and immensely carefully crafted um, to reflect the point of view of the characters who are speaking it, to be appropriate to the moment in the story. When you take the poems and you really look at them carefully and you, you sort of think about them in the context of the story that's going on around them, you can learn a tremendous lot uh, that he doesn't get to squeeze into the prose. Um, so, I mean, I, I love the poems. In, in, my, uh, in my online lecture series, I always spend, every single time we get to a poem, I'm like, eh, now let's spend half an hour talking about this poem. And I wish we could do that in class. We're just not going to have time to do it in class. Um, but uh, so anyway, I, I, it, I'm... You know, not going to check on this or really probably ever know. But if you are if you are more interested to find out more about any of the passages that we're doing, uh, I would welcome you to uh, to to listen to my lectures on the chapters because it. There's more that I can say that we're just going to run out of time for me to do. But anyway, one brief mention that I will uh, say about his language and the childishness. Um, Remember how he talked about the concern that people, you know, one particular dynamic of that, making stories appropriate for children in the late Victorian era that he hated most was the way in which they always wanted to clean things up. Like, oh goodness, we should not, you know, have in a child's story any kind of scary or horrific thing, so let's cut out the stories that end really badly or, you know, that end sort of shockingly. Um, you know, as those of you who have read earlier fairy tales will know, many of them do. I mean, um, you know, you will probably certainly remember the experience, you know, if as a child you read a fairy story, uh, a fairy tale like The Goose Girl from the Brothers Grimm, which, uh, you know, and as I said, if you read it as a child, you will doubtless retain in your memory uh, the image of the servant girl being punished by being uh, thrust naked into a barrel with nails driven through it and rolled down a hill. Um, that's exactly the kind of story that many people were like, mm, let's not give this one to the children, perhaps. Tolkien, you'll remember, resisted that impulse. And, and, uh, and you know, he said, on callow, lumpish, on callow, lumpish, and selfish youth, Peril, sorrow, and the shadow of death can bestow dignity and even sometimes wisdom. And I think we can see that principle being applied in really interesting ways in chapter one. You'll notice he doesn't pull punches. That is, he doesn't avoid things which could be horrifying or scary. But he is careful to diffuse the horror of it. He doesn't just scare uh, children, but he does use comedy very effectively. 
or funny turns of phrase. Um, three examples that I would uh, point to. First is a very simple one. When, uh, when Bilbo is having what in his little world is a serious crisis, when the, the dwarves have descended on him and he's bustling around and he's, he's really like losing control of what's going on, Tolkien's comment on this is, this was the most awkward Wednesday he could remember. <laughs> right? Not avoiding the serious crisis of identity and <laughs> circumstance that he's having, but, uh, but inviting us to laugh at it. Or even more seriously, um, <laughs> when they're talking about the secret entrance to the mountain and, and, and Thorin is saying, well, I'm sure uh, you know, Smaug will have found that out long ago. And, and uh, Gandalf says, oh, no, no, no it's far too small. Uh, he, could ne- he could never have fit through it. And certainly not after devouring all of the dwarves uh, and men of Dale. I'm so, so on the one hand, we are alluding to the massacre and consumption of the, this entire city by the dragon, but talking about it in the context of, well, after like eating everybody alive, he would have been way too fat to fit through this hole. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the not replacement of, but sort of the softening of the horror of the moment with comedy. And, uh, and, and also the ways in which he, oh, and even more, Thrain, uh, 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 Thorin's dad, who disappeared and was never heard from again, Remember, Gandalf is delivering the news. Oh, yeah, I found your dad. He was kind of like, uh, he, he was in the dungeons of the necromancer and had already kind of gone insane and was being tortured to death. Uh, that's what happened to your dad. I mean, this is like the first time Thorne is finding out what happened to his father who's been missing for 100 years. Um, but the way that he describes the event, you know, he, he prefaces this by saying, um, your, your father, you'll remember, uh, disappeared 100 years ago last Thursday. I mean, it's, and, and the, the, the whimsical context that he gives to it, I mean, 100 years ago last Thursday, um, he doesn't, as I said, he doesn't bank off from it, but he helps to contextualize it. Um, this is one little glimpse at the, what, what I think is the primary function that Bilbo serves uh, in chapter one of The Hobbit, and that is Bilbo is a mediator for the experience of the reader. Um, remember, as I said, The Hobbit is his first published work of fiction. His ideas about subcreation and secondary belief and all that stuff, this is his first crack at it, his first real crack at it. Um, and he recognizes that the big challenge in successfully creating secondary belief is how do you get your readers to, to come into the world? How do you get them to invest the kind of imaginative belief that they're going to need to do in order to have the experience that, that you want them to have? And Bilbo functions brilliantly as the kind of halfway between the reader and the world. Gandalf, for instance, is not only is he fully immersed within the, this secondary world of magic and adventure that Tolkien is building here, um, but he is himself almost the definer of it. He is, in that first introduction uh, to Gandalf, we are told that tales and adventures spring up wherever he goes. Gandalf is the story maker, right? And then we have Bilbo, who is himself deeply resistant to exactly the things that a mundane reader is going to be resistant to. And so we see Bilbo getting eased in, sometimes uncomfortably, 
getting eased into that world. And as he is eased in, we are eased in. And it's, it's, it's managed really, really well, again, especially with a juvenile audience in mind. Um, the, primary, the primary dynamic that we see in Bilbo's character, uh, who are Bilbo's parents? His parentage is very important. Who was his dad? I don't remember his Yes, Bungo Baggins. Good old Bungo Baggins. Um, what was Bungo Baggins like? Bungo Baggins and the Baggins family? Yeah? They're sort of the quintessential hobbits. They never do anything interesting or go on any adventures. Yes, they are resistant to adventure. They never do anything unexpected. The great thing about the Baggins is, is that you can know what they're going to say even without asking them on any subject, right? doesn't matter. They're predictable. That is a good thing. And therefore, remember, the word that he uses is respectable. They're a very respectable family. Who is his mom? That was Donna How is she introduced? Do you remember? Yeah, there's this dirty rumor about the Tooks, or rather this fanciful story about the Tooks, that somewhere back in the Took ancestry... Uh, one of them took a fairy wife, which means married an elf. Now, the narrator dismisses this as, of course, absurd, uh, but yet it tells us something about the Tooks and the kind of family that they are, that we would even have this suspicion. There's something not quite Hobbit-like about them. They're richer than the Bagginses, who are very rich, but, but not as respectable. Some of them have even gone on adventures, if you can believe that. Does anyone remember the adjective that is applied to his mom when she is first introduced? She's not just Belladonna Took, which is already a rather flamboyant name compared to Bungo Baggins. Jordan? She's the famous Belladonna Took, one of the three remarkable daughters of the old Took. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is something that no Baggins ever is. She's the daughter of the old Took, who is Gandalf's friend. Um, so Bilbo is half Took and half Baggins. Um, and the narrator suggests that although he looks exactly like his dad and has always ex- acted exactly like his dad and is very Baggins-ish, uh, he must have gotten something queer in his makeup from the Took side. There is still Took blood in him. Um, and the, at times, conflict, but at least relationship, between the Took aspects and Baggins aspects of Bilbo um, are going to be a theme throughout the entire book. Um, It's a theme that never entirely goes away. On the one hand, we can see his progression as he goes on his adventure. He is immersed more and more and more and more completely into the world of adventure, um, which is the Tookish world. But he never totally loses his Baggins-ish, Baggins-ishness. I'm with you, but it doesn't work. Um, We start in Bag End, which is the heart and essence, not only of hobbitness, uh, but of that Baggins quality, right? It was the house that was built by Bungo Baggins himself. 
uh, and which Bilbo has, has inherited. Um, it is a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Uh, the place where you sit out smoking on the lawn comfortably after second breakfast. Um, and then what happens, of course, in chapter 1, what do we see occur? And that's shocking. Uh, Shocking enough for him to go on an adventure. Far more shocking for adventure to invade Bag End itself. Um, And he has that horrible sinking feeling like he feels like a most wretched adventure has come right into his house. Right? And it's very shocking. Uh, It's very difficult for him to deal with. Um, Where's the turning point where he himself begins to be less resistant to it? He is not, as the narrator suggests at one point, quite as prosy as he likes to believe. That is, he thinks of himself as 100% Baggins, but he's not 100% Baggins. And when does that first begin to come out? Rachel? When the dwarves are talking about him being a king, they say, oh, maybe he won't be as Yes. And I forget the line that's holding you in his face. And Bilbo said something that he would later regret. So he put his foot right in there. Yes. Bilbo just goes and says, no, I can do this. Yes. For like a paragraph or two. Yes. When he overhears the insults in the other room, when Glowen uh, is insulting him and saying that he looks more like a grocer than a burglar, um, and that's very, you know, like grocer versus burglar is very, oh, it's like Baggins versus Took. I mean, that's, that's, that's very much the Baggins world versus the Took world. He gets offended. Um, He's mad at being considered that. And he wants to go in and prove that he is fierce, prove that he can be a burglar too. Um, And yet the the narrator says the Took side had won. And there he goes and and commits himself. Um, That's the moment where his own will becomes directed to that. So I agree that's a really important moment. But there's a glimmer earlier on too when the change, I think, starts to happen, before, it's, it is before his own will is behind it. Brittany? Um, I feel like Dwarf singing a song, and he, like, yes, the Dwarf's is going out, but then he sees the fire, and he's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, good. Remember Tolkien's vocabulary back in On Fairy Stories. What happens to Bilbo during the song is he gets enchanted. That is, he... In listening to the song and the, 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 to, the, to the poetry of the dwarves, he invests himself in it and almost loses himself in it. He himself experiences as an enchantment the dwarves' world and the dwarves' story and gets lost in it and begins to... And he looks out the window and you can see him starting to think dwarfish thoughts. He looks at the stars and imagines gems gleaming within, gleaming within caves. But then... As Brittany points out, he sees a little flame. Somebody lights a wood fire or something and imagines a dragon coming down and, and, and resting on, on his hill and immediately becomes terrified and is suddenly plain old Mr. Baggins of Bag End once again. Um, he is still not willing to commit himself to it, but for that moment, he's taken outside of himself and he sees that other world. And that's really kind of the first introduction to it. The first moment when we see something in him responding uh, to this uh, in, in, in a really full way. 
What are you thinking of, Jordan? I'm thinking of an even earlier bit. When he was in Gandalf introduced himself, he's like, Dear me, he went on. Not that Gandalf was responsible for so many yes. quiet lads and lasses going off into the blue for mad adventures. Anything from climbing trees to visiting elves or sailing a ship, sailing other roads. Bless me, life used to be quite into... I mean, um, you used to upset things badly in these persons one time. Yes. That's where we're told he's not quite as prosy as he likes to believe. That's our first piece of evidence that he's not 100% Baggins. Um, evidence, that is, not claim, but evidence. Um, we don't yet see him responding to this adventure and this adventurous world, but yes, that is, we, are, we are given our first glimpse of, of what's actually inside Bilbo there. That is an important point for that reason. And, the, and I, I would... Coming back again to one of my personal favorite things about this book, it's very interesting that the word prosy Tolkien chooses to use to describe... You know, he establishes a parallel uh, between the Baggins and Took. Uh, he parallels to prose and poetry. Uh, and that, I think, is a really interesting connection, especially, of course, if we think back to the significance of verse and song as we've seen it through the Silmarillion. Another reason why, of course, it is a very natural thing to pay lots of attention to the songs that people sing uh, when they sing them, as they so often do in The Hobbit. But... Um, Look at his relationship to adventures. I want to kind of uh, uh, point out a couple different sort of progressions of passages. The, the way that Tolkien eases things in uh, is, is very deliberate and very interesting. Um, his first reaction to the idea of adventure, his first response to it, when, he, when, he, when, when Gandalf you know, says that he's looking for to send somebody on an adventure... Um, he dismisses adventures and says he doesn't, doesn't, doesn't think much of them. Do you remember why the reason he gives for them? What's the bad thing about adventures? Yeah, dinner, yeah. The, yeah so nasty, disturbing things make you late for dinner. This is his concept of adventure, right? It might, it might, and, and remember, he loves to take walks, right? We, he has the, his map and his walks drawn on. He loves that. So he's clearly imagining an adventure as like, you know, something that might happen to you when you're, like, hiking and, like, ooh, you'd come home and you'd be late for dinner is a very narrow and very funny view of what an adventure is. Um, we see him just a couple of pages later uh, as more and more dwarves are showing up and he's thinking about what will happen if more dwarves come and the cakes run short at tea. Well, he knew his duty as the host, and he stuck to his duty, no matter how painful. He might have to go without cakes at tea himself. And this is a big deal. You know, and he's like, oh, boy, hardships. Right? I might have to go without cakes for tea. Uh, later on in that moment, Rachel, that you were recalling, when he's sort of trying to express sort of internally how extremely much he would like to be considered fierce and to prove himself to be a burglar. The way that's expressed, he would go without bed and breakfast to be considered fierce. That's how much he cares. I mean, that's extreme right there. Even Forget being late for dinner. Entirely without bed and breakfast, if you can believe it. Right? Unbelievable. Uh, in the next chapter, Gandalf tells him gently you might have to manage without many more things besides pocket handkerchiefs, right? He's really bothered because he's left without his pocket handkerchiefs. And fortunately, Gandalf brings him some pocket handkerchiefs and things are okay. But again, this is like a, you know, in his world, uh, the idea, like that, that is an adventure, right? I mean, to be, to be, to be 
traveling without a pocket handkerchief. Um, where we get, of course, by chapter 4, um, you know, and you think about thinking about where we begin, um, and we end up, no ponies, no food, and no knowing quite where we are, and hordes of angry goblins just behind. Big difference. We are now thoroughly immersed in real adventure. And he begins really to understand what it is. And we see, uh, when we see where he comes from, and again, the way that he progresses. Um, this is modeled by, modeled by the terrain. Notice on page 29 how this happens as they're setting out. At first they passed through Hobbit lands, a wide, respectable country inhabited by decent folk, with good roads, an inn or two, and now and then a dwarf or a farmer ambling by on business. This is still adventure for Bilbo, but that's fairly tame. Then they came to lands where people spoke strangely and sang songs Bilbo had never heard before. Now they had gone on far into the lone lands, where there were no people left, no inns, and the roads grew steadily worse. Not far ahead were dreary hills, rising higher and higher, dark with trees. On some of them were old castles with an evil look, as if they had been built by wicked people. Everything seemed gloomy, for the weather that day had taken a nasty turn. And of course, we're building up to meeting the trolls by the side of the road, discussing how they really wish they were consuming human flesh. Um, so, once again, we can see him traveling from the Baggins world further and further uh, and becoming more completely immersed in the adventurous world. But he never totally leaves it behind. This is not a story of somebody who starts off as 100% Baggins or maybe 99% Baggins and 1% Took and over the course of the book becomes more and more Tookish and more and more acclimated to the world of adventure. We will see him become more acclimated to the world of adventure, but that's not the only or even the primary story that we see happening. Um, he will never really lose his Baggins-ishness. He will never really lose his old perspective. He gains some new ones, but he never really loses his old ones. And we can see this, again, kind of geographically focused when he keeps referring to his hole and thinking about his home, thinking about Bag End. All those times when he's thinking about being at home, what does he picture? What does he almost always picture? <laughs> he, he does come back to Bacon quite a bit. Uh, we will see him constantly come back to thinking about cooking, and especially eggs and bacon. But there's a particular visual image not even just visual. It has audio and even tactile components as well. Yeah. Sitting by his fire in his cozy habit Sitting by his fire, yes. Usually with the kettle just beginning to sing, right? Um, the, the peace, the order, the comfort, the warmth. Um, and it's interesting to take note of when that image comes up. When he, when he comes back to that in his mind, he comes back to it that night right before they meet the trolls, right before they see the trolls fire in the distance and the pony has run off into the river and, and they've lost a lot of their food and it's raining and they can't light the fire and they're sitting under the trees which are drip, drip, dripping on their head and everyone's cold and wet and miserable and he's sitting there thinking for the first time, uh, for, for the first time that is recorded but not for the last time, as we are continually reminded about his nice hobbit hole. It happens again 
when he sees the mountains for the first time, the misty mountains, and how big the mountains are, and it, it causes him to reflect back on his hobbit hole. Um, when he is climbing up the mountains, looking out into the blue distance at the very, very remote world of safe and comfortable things that he's leaving behind him. Um, when he's being hauled off down the tunnel by goblins who are pinching him and singing delightful songs about how they're going to put them all into slavery and work them until they die uh, while laughing at them because that's very funny uh, to goblins uh, that is causing slaves to work until they drop dead while you're whipping them. Um, is a good time. So uh, anyway, th- while this is happening, he's thinking about his bright hobbit hole. That's the, the descriptive word used there, which is, of course, uh, uh, different from the other ones, uh, natural, that he would be thinking about that in the darkness of the goblins' tunnel. Um, and again, while he's running away from the goblins, um, being carried by various dwarves because he's too slow uh, to keep up with them. Um, and as he's bouncing along in the backs of the dwarves with the goblins chasing along just behind, he's thinking about uh, his hobbit hole again, too. Watch when this happens, um, and watch how his relationship with his home and his memories change when sometimes it's different, and how it impacts his relationship with how, how he understands what's going on and how it relates to his own change and his... Uh, he does, as I say, get acclimated to his new world and becomes a more and more effective adventurer. He's not very effective at the beginning, Uh, The business with the trolls is called, by the narrator of the Fellowship of the Ring, when they come to the place where the trolls are, uh, Aragorn and the hobbits will will, will see the stone trolls, uh, and the the hobbits, Frodo et al., will look back on this moment in the Hobbit and remember Bilbo's stories. They call it, in retrospect, Bilbo's first successful adventure. And that's a slightly overkind description of it that is, you know... It's successful in the sense that he survives. I mean, none of them die, so I guess that counts as a win. But it's not like Bilbo accomplishes anything. In fact, kind of the reverse of accomplishing anything. Um, As Bomber points out, gets them all into trouble, really. So, um, but anyway, you know, from from that moment, he's he's still uh, bungling, though trying to be burglarious, my favorite word in The Hobbit. Um, but uh, anyway, he, he, he will become more effective, and we will see him in not too many chapters become the real leader of the party and be doing, doing some actually uh, brave and remarkable things. But even when that happens, keep watching his memories of his house and how he relates in his own mind to his previous setting and his Baggins context, and how that changes his experience of his later adventures. Two things that I just want to mention, I won't won't talk about them much now because it's time for you to go, but two things I want you to be keeping in mind as you continue reading through. One is Bilbo's identity. That is, there's this debate. Is he really a burglar? Gandalf identifies him with a magic sign, a magic sign which... uh, I believe to be an actual joke at Bilbo's expense when Gandalf uh, writes it. You'll remember they quote the magic mark that they saw on the door, which says, you know, a burglar wants a job, uh, plenty of excitement and lots of reward. And Gandalf is actually, if you read it carefully, laughing while he's carving it on Bilbo's door. Um, He knows that's a joke. He's very far from a burglar who's looking for plenty of excitement. Um, But Gandalf sticks by it. When they're debating, when the dwarves are saying, you know, he's not a real burglar, he's more like a grocer than a burglar, uh, 
Gandalf says, I, I, I said he was a burglar, and a burglar he is, or will be when the time comes. So looking at that, 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 that understanding of Bilbo's identity and how that, that evolves, is he a burglar or is he not a burglar? Is he, in fact, as Gandalf calls him, the chosen and selected burglar um, or not? The second thing that I want to just draw your attention to, keep in mind when this is referred to luck, you'll notice there are some extraordinary chances which occur in this story um, and some rather remarkable pieces of good fortune that befall them. Um, Just keep track of those because I want to bring them together and look at them later on. Have a good weekend. That's it for today. For the next class, be sure to read the next three chapters of The Hobbit, which will bring Bilbo and the dwarves right up to the edge of Mirkwood. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.